This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. You are listening to the Motherhood Unstress Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here. And if you're tuning into this episode, most likely you're the parent of a boy. I am the mom of two boys, and so this was particularly fascinating to me. I'm speaking with the amazing Emma Brown. She's the investigative journalist who broke the Christine Blasey Ford, Brett Kavanaugh story. You might remember that. And she's being brutally honest in her new book, To Raise a Boy, about the gender-specific issues that boys and men face today. The world is drastically different than even a generation ago, and I think it's important that we become aware of how it is so that we can make the right choices, the best decisions, um, even just saying the right thing for our children to, to make sure that they are as successful and as safe as they can possibly be. We're covering things like gender expectations, how shame harms and hinders boys, how parents can help boys survive gender stereotyping that goes on, even sexual violence against boys, which completely shocked me. I had no idea it was so prevalent and that it was such an issue. Um, So I'm glad that we're talking about it. Again, it's not something I enjoy talking about. It kind of makes me want to clamp down and protect my boys and not send them to school and just like homeschool them. But I know that that's not that's not the best thing for them. And I think to be the best parents that we can be, we need to be aware of the issues and then we need to have the knowledge, the education to move forward um, intelligently. So I'm so glad that she's here sharing her wisdom, sharing her amazing book. And uh, if you enjoy this episode, please share it with another parent of a boy. Um, And you know, and all of us, all of us parents need to hear this. So we better understand what the reality is. And again, so we can navigate it the best way possible for our children. That is the point, you know, that's why we're here. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please share it with a friend. And of course, keep those reviews coming on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy. Well, hello, Emma. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I mean, we were talking before, this is such a huge book. What was the spark that made you want to take on something this large, this massive? Well, I was sitting home with my son, who was then six weeks old, um, and I was on maternity leave with him when the first Harvey Weinstein stories broke. And of course, I, like everyone else, watched those stories and then all the flood of other Me Too stories kind of rocket across the media, um, all the while sort of holding my baby in my arms and wondering, how am I going to raise my son to be different? Um, So that is the question that launched me on this project. And it took me um, to communities across the country, to urban and suburban and rural places to talk to all kinds of people, um, coaches and teachers and parents and boys and parents um, of boys themselves, of course. Uh, and what I learned was that I had, you know, when my daughter was born three years before my son, I had such strong gut instincts about how to parent her. Um, 
especially how to parent her to resist the the stereotypes that are beamed at girls from the time they're tiny. But I had no idea what my son was going to face in that realm. I had no gut instinct. And so this was an incredible opportunity for me to learn what it's like to be a boy in America right now and also to learn how we can do a better job for boys. I love that. And there is such an instinctual thing that happens when you have a baby. You want to do the best job you can. You don't really know what you're doing. At least I didn't. And so it's like you're taking everything that you've learned through school and your work and you're putting it towards this mission, the most important mission that we as parents have. Um, And I think it's so important to bring everyone's awareness up to what you have learned. So can you talk to us more about the the statistics that you learned Um, especially regarding boys and what they're facing um, in the present time? Sure. Well, I mean, one of the most incredible things uh, or sort of awakening for me as a mom of a boy uh, was just the shame that boys face um, in the world. I mean, shame is corrosive for all of us, right? Um, But it it is such a um, sort of lurks everywhere for boys if they try to push up against the boundaries of what we've traditionally thought of as what it means to be a boy. So if they seem feminine or girly, um, they get punished, whether that's being teased or being beat up. And, you know, I think that the, the, the that sort of tight box that we put boys in has something to do with the outcomes that we see for boys and men that are really troubling in terms of both their physical health. I mean, Men don't live as long as women, both here in the United States and around the world. Men are much more likely to die by suicide, four times more likely to die by suicide. Um, they are more likely to be the victims of violent crime. So uh, there's there's the sort of physical health outcomes for men. And then there's the mental health outcomes of the way that we raise boys. Um, you know, I mentioned dying by suicide, but also just loneliness. I talked to one um, man, I, he told me he, he on his 50th birthday, you know, woke up and realized he was alone. He didn't have friends that he could deeply confide in. And when I thought, when I met him and heard that and thought about my own son, I, I felt um, like I've got to do something to make sure that he's equipped with the skills that he's going to need to to be connected to other people in the way that we know is so essential. Um, so those are, so those are, those are some of the outcomes for boys that I found really troubling. Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked when I was reading that in the book and, you know, especially when it comes to suicide rates, I had no idea. And then also the, the part about physical violence and them thinking, you know, good percentage of boys thinking that that's how you earn respect. Where does this come from? Is, does it come from the very beginnings of this country? Why are we raising our boys in the traditional sense to feel this way, to act this way, to be this way? Well, I think, um, you know, we, we've we got a long tradition in, in our country of sharply dividing girls and boys and and teaching them very different things about what it means to be who they are. And so the... the um, I think what we need to do is figure out how, and it's really tough as parents, right? Because the whole culture, not the whole culture, things are changing, I think, in a really positive way. But there's still a lot of messages that that come to our boys about what you said, about using violence to get respect, about not showing weakness, about always wanting sex, about being dominant. Like these kinds of themes are everywhere in our media, in pop culture. They're even you know, they, they show up at school, um, and with peers. And so 
we as parents definitely need to support our boys and giving them different messages. And we could really use the help and support of all these other institutions that are helping us raise our kids. Yeah. Yeah. How much does school play into reinforcing, perpetuating these old modalities of behavior? I think it's huge. I mean, and I say that both as a parent, but also as a former teacher. I used to teach middle school um, where I got to see uh, what I really remembered from my own middle school experience was, you know, peers really enforcing these stereotypes on one another. And, um, you know, when it comes to thinking about let's take sexual harassment, like one of the drivers of sexual harassment is boys who are trying to prove that they're really manly to their friends um, really has nothing to do with sex at all. Uh, But it has to do with proving one's manliness. And so as one researcher put it, you know, if you grab a a girl's breasts, nobody's going to doubt that you're that you're straight. And nobody's going to doubt that you're a guy. Um, and so, yeah, and, uh, in school, speaking of sexual harassment, in school, it's so prevalent. And yet, oftentimes, nothing's done. And so, if mm-hmm. you can imagine, you know, children sort of watching sexual harassment happening all around them, verbal sexual harassment, physical sexual harassment, um, nothing's done. They come to see it as normal, which is like not at all what we want our children to be learning. Um, so schools, I think, have a big part to play in helping us do do better, both by in terms of breaking down these gender norms and also in terms of um, helping helping sort of readjust what we think of as, as normal and okay behavior. Do you think schools are afraid to come down on the boys, you know, for for getting retaliated against against the parents, you know, why why is there this hesitant nature to to hold these boys accountable? And I'm a mother of boys, like it's scary. And you know, as you say in the book, you know, I want him to be held accountable. It's also scary. I think it's going to uplift all of us when that happens. Why aren't these schools following through with this? I mean, I think a lot of it is lack of training, um, lack of training, so that teachers and even principals don't really know how to handle situations like that. I mean, if you think about our workplaces and think about the stories we've heard about bad behavior persisting in workplaces because people don't really know how to handle it or are in power dynamics where they feel like they can't change anything. I mean, schools have a lot of those power dynamics. And mm-hmm. um, so between between the power dynamics and lack of training, I think that those are two of the big reasons why um, schools don't. And also, like, they just have so much on their plates, right? Like, they they um, are under huge pressure on the academic front on so many fronts. And I think that something like this school culture gets pushed often to the back of the list. So would you say that the onus then is more on the parent to to nurture their child, to speak to their child, to raise them so that when they do get into the school system, you know, the environment that exists, they can fight the environment or at least navigate it with more grace? I mean, I think we as parents have the obligation and responsibility and gift of of um, giving our boys a place where they can be themselves fully. Like they don't have to be afraid. Um, and if they're, you know, if they have, hopefully have parents who can let them be their full selves. And so even, even when they walk out the door to a place that may not, where they may not feel safe being their full selves, they can still come home and they can have that safe haven. They can reconnect with who they are and what they care about. 
And, um, you know, researchers told me that that is one of the most powerful things we can give our sons is that safe haven and that uh, a warm and open and strong relationship with a parent is one of the, the most protective factors there is for teenagers. You know, they it protects against depression and substance abuse and violence. And so schools have a responsibility, sure. But but I think we we um, we are always going to be sort of at the top of the list when it comes to um, the impact we can have on our kids. Okay, so the big question is, how do we foster that? How do we do that in our homes, especially if you're a parent who was raised, you know, very old school, you know, you don't talk about your feelings, you don't even say I love you in some cases. How do you then bridge that gap? Well, one thing we need to do is examine our own biases about boys, right? Um, And that's one thing that this book forced me to do. Um, I wrote in the book about a really difficult subject about boys as victims of sexual violence, which is goes against a lot of our uh, messaging and stereotypes about who's affected by sexual violence. So I think we have to examine our own biases. And then, yeah, we need to model that kind of emotional connection and intimacy with our sons. One of the most, excuse me, inspiring parents on my uh, journeys was a dad who had created space for his middle school son to talk about whatever was on his mind by taking daily walks with the dog around the block. You know, he and, and the mom as well had a close relationship. They were able to talk about things like pornography and why, why what you see in pornography is not the same as a real sexual encounter. I mean, these parents just had cultivated such an openness with their child by by creating space for him to speak and by being willing to hear what he had to say and engage with him in a really honest and straightforward way. Um, So I think that's one of, you know, when I think about what kind of parent I'd like to be, my kids are only three and six, but when my kids hit that age of middle school and then high school, they have succeeded in, in creating that kind of open openness and warmth. Yeah. And it seems like, like you said in the book, that you need to have these conversations about pornography, about emotions, about intimacy, even before middle school, which was kind of surprising to me. But it's like by the time they get to middle school, it's almost too late. And then the peers have taken over. So can you talk to us about when the right time is to start that? And I know it's different for everyone, but what's a good ballpark? I think, I mean, I think it's great to start talking with your kids about, not about sex, but about bodily autonomy, about personal space, you know, when they're, when they're really tiny. Um, I think kids are constantly violating one another's personal space and there's a lot of opportunities to share with them, um, uh, you know, to share with them lessons about how other people are reacting to them, gauging that through facial expressions, through words, understanding how someone else is feeling. So I think we can start having those kinds of conversations really early. But as you say, we can all, we also need to start having conversations about things that feel more advanced, like pornography, earlier than we might think, because boys are starting to see pornography sometimes on purpose, but sometimes just by stumbling on it because we live in the world of the internet, you know, when they're really young. Um, And so sex ed has kind of evaporated from a lot of public schools over the last two decades, which was shocking to me. Um, Even as former teacher and then education reporter, I didn't know that. Um, 
And then at the same time, of course, online pornography has become much more prevalent. And so if we're not talking with our kids, we're kind of leaving open the opportunity that they're going to learn about intimacy from pornography, where so much of, of what they see is not consensual, is not respectful. Um, and so we, we kind of need to fill that gap. And if we don't feel equipped to do that as parents ourselves, I think there are always resources that we can tap. You know, I talked in the book about my, my parents didn't talk much with me about sexuality, but my church, the Unitarian church Mm -hmm. had an incredible comprehensive sex ed course where we talked about everything. And my parents gave me access to that. So there's like, I think there's different ways we can give our children that, but we have to give them that conversation and that guidance. Yeah, absolutely. And and we have a wide range of listeners coming from parts of the world that are very open and love to talk about this. And then also parts of the world where it's forbidden, you know, you can't even broach that subject. So I love that we're talking about this. For those women in those countries, what is a way like you can't necessarily take them to a place to talk about this because you just can't. What are some, I don't know, not sly ways, but other ways that we can bring this into the conversation and not feel like we're violating our sense of morals and right and wrong and, you know, getting into talk that that makes us uncomfortable or or goes against our beliefs. This episode is sponsored by Public Goods. Public Goods is your one-stop shop for everything that you need for home and life. Now, it's completely online. You're not going to find a store out in your neighborhood, but that's kind of the beauty of it in 2021. I would rather have everything that I need delivered to my door when I need it at an amazing price. And the other cool thing about them is everything is in this minimalistic aesthetic. So it's black and white, very clean lines. Everything looks really good in your bathroom or your kitchen or your pantry, and you can feel good about the products that you're bringing into your home. Everything is heavily researched. A lot of the packaging is sustainable. It's biodegradable. They do a really good job at taking a more responsible stance um, towards the environment and towards quality. And of course, since you're a listener of the show, they're going to hook you up with a good deal. You get $15 off your first purchase if you go to publicgoods.com forward slash unstressed. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S.com forward slash unstressed, or you can use unstressed at checkout. Well, one thing, I mean, at the heart of all of this is believing in the inherent dignity of every person, right? And so I think we can talk with our sons to whatever degree, you know, of detail we're comfortable about what that means when they're interacting with other people, whether that's other boys in their in their um, lives or, or girls um, or anybody. Like, but really, all of the talk about sexual consent and about um, intimacy and respecting other people in your relationships comes down to respecting their inherent dignity and worth, I think. So I I think that that's something that we can talk about, you know, wherever we're coming from, um, in, in some way we can find a way to, to tell our sons what we think that means. I love that answer. And then to go back to, you know, the sexual violation against boys, which was shocking to me, you know, to read that, um, talk to us about what that actually means, because the woman, woman listening might not even understand what we're talking about, and then what to look for and how to speak to our children to avoid that from happening. I'm so glad you asked me to explain what that means, because it can mean so many different things. I think when we hear sexual vi- violation of boys, we might think of older men preying on boys, like the Catholic Church scandal or Boy Scouts, um, really sort of explosive scandals like that that have taken taken over the news. And sometimes that's, what's, that's what we're talking about. But we're also talking about 
uh, peers um, uh, sexually assaulting one another, and that can be either boys or girls um, assaulting other uh, assaulting boys. And or we can be talking about older women also uh, assaulting younger boys. So there's sort of a, a whole range of what we're talking about. And I think, um, you know, all of those things, it's important for boys to know from the time they're young, from their parents, that their bodies are their own and their bodies are sacred and nobody should touch them without their permission. Um, so I think that's one of the most important things we can do. But I think um, in in the book, I think one of the more shocking um, findings for me was the way that on sports teams, how boys can use sexual assault or even rape as a as a way to show domination um, and as a way to put younger boys in their place. And um, because we're we don't often talk about boys and sexual assault, you know, boys can be sexually assaulted without even realizing that's what happened to them. They come to see if they join a team as a freshman and they hear about a tradition of um of, you know, what might be called brooming, which is basically attacking another boy with a a broomstick and trying to shove it into his uh, anus. They hear about this tradition and they might be scared, but it's also like a tradition. It's what's normal. And then they're victimized. And then when they get old, older and they're the seniors, um, then they do it to the younger players. And so it becomes like a ritual or tradition that gets passed down. And I think we have to we have to make sure our boys know that there's nothing normal or okay about that. And that if something um, like I said, their bodies are sacred and if somebody tries to violate them, we are a safe place for them to come. Um, And I think, you know, uh, boys deserve that from their parents. They also absolutely deserve that from their coaches. Um, they deserve their coaches who are, who demand a culture of respect on their teams. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you hear about, you know, these fraternities that, that do that and people get killed or, you know, even if it's just alcohol related and then all of these other things come up, it's astounding. I think to know that this happens and this has been happening for, for decades, really. Um, how do you reckon, cause I know emotional intimacy is so important for girls and boys. How do you reckon standing up for yourself, standing up against the crowd, you know, obviously they're doing these horrible things, but also being connected to others. I mean, I, they probably feel like it's this or I'm alone. That is really insightful. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that happens with so many things when teenagers or, or not just teenagers when and it's, it's not even just children it's really all of us right we we all face that tension in different parts of our lives where we have to choose either go with the crowd and sort of be be somebody who's belonging and man boys want to belong like they want to be part of their friend group right um so you have to choose between that and between keep you know being safe and feeling safe in your own body. And nobody should have to make that choice, obviously. Um, but I think, I mean, you're right. And we ask of boys, um, particularly, you know, I'm talking now about um, sexual violence prevention programs where we ask boys and girls to be um, bystanders, or sometimes we call, they're called upstanders, people who like push back against when they see somebody being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted, it's really asking so much of people, right, to, to stand up in a situation like that. And if you really ask yourself whether you would do that in a situation, would you really? Right. I mean, it's, it's a in huge, the moment. 
Yeah. Yeah. We're asking a lot of kids when we ask that. And so, I mean, I, I really, I, this is why I think parents need help from the institutions that are helping to raise boys, because what we really want to do is harness that power of wanting to belong so that when, when boys are wanting to belong, they're wanting to belong to something good, to something positive, to something, um, that, that, lifts each of them up rather than trying to win by putting others down. And so there are programs and individuals who are really succeeding at that, that give me a lot of hope. And I'll just mention one because it's so simple. (laughs) I think um, it's something that parents could ask of their coaches if if their um, boys are on teams. It's called Coaching Boys into Men. And it is a program where, where coaches spend 15 minutes a a week, like not a lot of time, 15 minutes a week talking to their players about issues like dignity and respect and intimacy and consent and um, sort of setting a tone where the expectation on a team is one of respect. And I know anecdotally from talking with boys whose coaches have done this and also from like gold standard research that this makes a difference in boys, in the boys' ability to have um, healthy relationships. And when you talk to boys about it, I mean, I talked to one young man who was so relieved for the conversation in the locker room to change. He mm-hmm. was so tired of hearing really, you know, a lot of derogatory stuff about girls and women. He was tired of having people ask him about his own sex life. So when that changed in his locker room, he was so grateful. And if you think about all the boys that that really feel that way, they, they want to be in an environment where it, it feels good and it feels like you can belong to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not relegated to just a church community or, you know, homeschool or something like that. You can actually be out into the regular world and, and have self-respect and respect for others. I mean, that is the ideal. Do you think, do you think it's possible? Do you really think it's possible after speaking with all of these people? Do you think that there is hope for our young boys starting today? I do have hope. And I, I don't think I'm being Pollyanna-ish. Um, I started the book feeling pretty fearful uh, for for my son and feeling um, like there were so many reasons to be concerned that his sort of spirit, you know, he's he's young. My son's three, uh, that, his, that he would be forced to sort of bury parts of his spirit as he uh, grew up. And I finished the book with more hope than I, than I thought I would, because not everywhere is changing. That's for sure. But there are, there are people and, and uh, organizations and every kind of community in this country that, that see the need to um, change the culture for boys and who are working on that. And I think my son is growing up in a very different context, um, than certainly than I did. I'm, uh, I think I'm 42. (laughs) I've lost track. Um, certainly than I did, but even, even then kids did 10 years ago. Um, there's just so much more conversation about how we raise boys to be boys now. And I think that's leading to, to good things, not everywhere, as I said, but in more places. Do you think fathers in particular are, are open to this new, narrative, this new dynamic, or do you think that they hold more tightly to the old ways just because that's all they knew? 
Well, I think the research shows that fathers are more likely to have more traditional views of masculinity and or not to, to, to sort of hold their sons, excuse me, to more traditional yeah. views of masculinity. And that's in part because they know the price that, that boys can pay if they stray beyond those traditional rules, right? I talked to one father um, who lives in Los Angeles now, but was raised in Chicago in the 80s in a community where he had to be tough and he had to never show weakness. And his son is now eight and wanted to have an American girl doll. They were at the mall and he saw the doll and he's like, daddy, can I get one? And his dad was torn because on the one hand, of course he wanted to give his son what he wanted. He didn't want to impose these rules about what it means to be a boy on his son, but he also didn't want to expose his son to ridicule, teasing, even being, you know, beat up. Uh, so he was really torn and it's kind of the flip side of that tension we were just talking about with boys. They feel it too. Mm. Um, so dads, yeah, dads are in that special position of having grown up as a boy and understand the pressures that boys are under, you know, understand the pressures boys are under and therefore wanting to protect them from the consequences of being different. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely feel that. Oh, I can't imagine. It's like, you can, you can think about it and you can try and sense how, you know, the dads feel and even how your children feel, but I don't know when it actually comes to saying something or buying a doll, I think it's a very different story. So I love that we're having this conversation about it. Now there is a quote in the book I want to read and then have you expand upon at the end. And this was just in your beautiful epilogue. It says, boys today are on their way to learning a lesson that my generation was never really taught, that every person gets to decide whether they want to be touched or not. A whole army of children across the country are now growing up hearing parents and teachers tell them over and over that their bodies are their own. Yes, that means society will hold my son accountable for his sexual behavior in a way that earlier generations never had to deal with. But I don't see that as a loss. What did you mean by that? I think that our this whole army of children that are growing up hearing this message is part of a larger rethinking of of um, what it means to be a boy. Like these two things are connected. Our awakening around me too of the prevalence of sexual harassment and sexual assault has, is part of the reason why there is such new energy around thinking about masculinity and what kinds of gender norms we keep reinforcing for boys. So these two things are tied and, and they go together. And, uh, you know, if we can deconstruct some of those gender norms and, and give our boys more space to be fully human, to access parts of themselves that are called feminine uh, and the parts of themselves that are called masculine, um, they I just think they'll have a better shot at having healthy, strong relationships, which are like what make life wonderful, you know? So that's why, like, I just don't see, I don't, I don't see this sort of new um, sense of accountability for boys as a loss, because I think it, it goes hand in hand with so many new opportunities for boys. Yeah. I mean, this to me is the evolution of the human race, you know, the human species. We need to become whole and complete 
just as humans, you know, rather than differentiate into two camps. So absolutely. I agree with that as much as it scares me, you know, like, Oh God, you know, what, what are my boys going to do out in the world? If I'm not there watching them, cause you never, you know, you never have full control, but you would think when you have these conversations, when you have the data out there shining a light on the real situation that there is hope and, you know, your children will do the right thing when the time comes. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, it's easy to feel scared for sure of so many different things, um, especially right now when we're all dealing with this pandemic. And, and I mean, there's a lot, lot of new anxieties in our parenting lives, right? But we do know a lot about what boys need in terms of support. Um, and so we can give it to them, you know, and that, that's a pretty, pretty wonderful position to be in, to know that um, what we do makes a difference. And that's, that was a huge takeaway for me um, in speaking with folks who have studied um, parenting, studied outcomes for boys, you know, parents make a difference and you might feel like you're not, especially I think parents of teens can sometimes feel that way. Like they don't want to, they don't want to hear from me, but they they do actually want to hear <laughs> from you. Say and that again. Fact, <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. And what you say and what you impart matters. And uh, and that's not like me as the mom of a three and six year olds with my, you know, short experience as a parent speaking. That's many, many, many um, reams of research uh, that tell us that parenting does matter. Yeah. How much time do you think a parent should spend having these kinds of conversations, you know, providing the support you were just talking about, is it, is it the 15 minutes a week, like the coaches, or is it like two minutes a day? What would you recommend? What does the data show? And I think the main thing that I hear over and over again from experts on this topic is it's just don't treat it like it's one big talk that you sit your kid down, you know, when he reaches a certain age and you fill him in and then that's that. It's an ongoing conversation that you can have. Um, and I don't, I don't know that there's like a set number of minutes per day or per week, but there are certainly so many opportunities to have this conversation. And by this conversation, it's, it's a broad conversation, right? Like, um, I remember this is, this pertains to my daughter, but, um, she was two and she looked across the street and there was a a house having a renovation done. And there was a woman on the roof and she said, what is that woman doing? And we told her that she was working on the house. She's doing construction on the house. And and my daughter said, um, that's not, you know, she can't, she's a woman. (laughs) I was so shocked and upset that at two, she had already absorbed that women don't do construction work. Um, but it was an opportunity also to say, to sort of counteract that stereotype, you know, and explain, oh, of course they do. You know, you might not see it that often, but they absolutely can and they absolutely do. And um, those opportunities with kids come up daily, you know, whether to counteract gender stereotypes. Um, the news gives us all kinds of opportunities to talk about, unfortunately, to talk about sexual harassment, sexual violence and consent. Uh, movies give us and TV gives us a lot of opportunity to talk about intimacy and relationships. So it doesn't, I think it doesn't have to be something forced or something that feels, um, uh, like you're, you're wedging it into the day, but you can look for opportunities to open up the conversation and see where it goes. 
I'm so going to do that because we were watching Billy Madison the other day. You know, you remember that movie? And there was a scene where they're like, I dare you to touch the teacher's boobs. And he was like, oh, no, no. And then he does it and everyone laughs and it's this funny scene. And in that moment, I didn't say anything. And just hearing you say that, that would have been a prime opportunity to say, hey, guys, let's turn this off, first of all. (laughs) But I don't remember that. Um, But that is not okay, And that's never okay, And it's not funny. Like that right there, that example right there would be perfect for what you were just saying. Absolutely. I mean, there was an example not too long ago where um, a TV anchor kind of giggled about um, the young boy, the young son of Kate Middleton. Anyway, he likes ballet. And this uh, (laughs) TV anchor giggled about it like, ha ha, boy who Mm -hmm. likes ballet. I mean, there's an opportunity to say, well, why would why would someone laugh about that? Of course, boys like ballet. Um, Or there's the movie The Notebook, uh, Mm -hmm. where... Um, there's a scene where she's up on a Ferris wheel and a guy climbs up and, and hangs from one. She's on a date with another guy and, and this other guy climbs up and hangs from one arm from her cart until she agrees to go on a date with him. Um, like totally coercing her into going on a date. Right. So there, there are a lot of opportunities in pop culture for uh, that we can take advantage of as parents to, to have that conversation. And then of course there's the questions your kids ask, which I think if, if this is like a running conversation, they, they know that they can bring you questions. Yeah, absolutely. I think after this conversation, I'm going to be like, looking at everything in pop culture, uh, in music, everywhere, and just being like, oh my God, this is a whole new world that I never really realized was open to me, you know, to to have that. It's it's not like, oh my gosh, this situation is so overwhelming. Like there's so many opportunities, you know, like this is a gift that we can really, you know, turn it around. Um, so with the book, with with everyone reading it, what do you want them to get out of it? What do you want the legacy of your work and the book to be? Wow. Well, um, no pressure. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, you know, at the heart of it is what we were talking about just a minute ago, which is that our boys deserve and need the opportunity to be fully themselves and fully human and, and not be told to sort of cut off parts of themselves or bury parts of themselves, um, because it's, it's not manly. Um, so that is one huge takeaway that I hope people um, people get from this book. Um, and then the other part is is yeah we we should we should talk with our kids about intimacy and relationships because they want that and they they really need that guidance. Um, I sat next to this young man uh, in Maine. We were just sitting around a table eating pizza with a bunch of um, teenagers and early twenty somethings. And he was talking about his father and how he really wanted some guidance from his father about how you have a full-time job and also have a family and a relationship. And I was thinking, man, that's a that's something that women and girls, you know, talk openly about all the time. It's like part of the the air of being a woman or uh, especially a woman who's trying to raise a family and and have a job. And so it was so interesting that he craved the exact same, Mm. had the exact same anxieties and exact same um, craving for guidance that so many girls do. So yeah, I think having really open, honest conversations with our sons about relationships and intimacy, and also making sure that they have the opportunity to be fully themselves. 
I love it. That's so beautiful. I was going to say, you know, what do you want the audience to remember from this talk? But I think that that was the perfect, perfect answer to that question. So I have one final question for you. And it's really just you finishing this sentence. And it is, I believe. I believe boys are human. <laughs> I, I, I believe boys are fully human. I love that. And with your book and all of your research and the work that you're putting out into the world, many, many, many more people are going to start to see that too. And I'm so grateful for that and all of your hard work over these years. And and I'm just glad that you're here sharing that with my audience. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey guys, I am so excited to share that my new book, Motherhood Unstressed, is now available worldwide on Amazon, Kindle, and my website. And this was a book that I designed for every busy mama out there. It's filled with original quotes, poetry, guided meditations, and journaling opportunities, all as a way to bring you back to who you really are. You know, when you become a mother, life changes in innumerable ways. And I think that we all have that that sense of purpose and joy within us at all times. It just takes a little help sometimes getting back to that. And that's what this book is about. I want it to be a touchstone in your day so you can literally flip to a page, gain some insight, gain some inner knowing, gain some inner peace, and then go into your day and run it. And I so look forward to seeing where the book goes in the world. Uh, If you do get it, please let me know. Please let me know what you think. And I just want to say thank you so much for reading. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you love this episode, please share it with a friend and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the show out to more and more mothers all over the world. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.